It's a great joy uh, for me to have the privilege to speak in this great church. Very thankful to uh, John Guest for the invitation. Thank you very much to Pastor Barry uh, for his introduction. It's a joy to be with you here and uh, thank you for that uh, partnership we've already got between this church and uh, Trinity School for Ministry. Uh, help, thank you for founding us, Trinity, through John Guest. We were first founded and established and encouraged along the path. You're here, as you uh, heard just now in the uh, announcements, that there are more uh, things still going on at Trinity. Thank you for the financial support, for scholarships. That's going to pay one person's complete education. Imagine how much we can put together to supply free education for students at Trinity. That's our goal. We want their education to be free. So they're free when they go, and ideally unburdened by debt, to go wherever God calls them to be. So thank you for that. And do make a note, as you'll see in the uh, bulletins there, there's uh, classes in June. Do come and see us. Hopefully there's classes there that might be a blessing to you. So more information there at the table. There's also one of our students. If you've got questions about being a student at Trinity, he will know even better than I <laughs> what it's like to be a student. So thank you for the chance to be with you. Let's have a prayer together. Heavenly Father, we do give you great thanks that you are a God who delights to speak word to us. You delights to help us come to faith in you. Thank you that you love us. Thank you that you desire us to be walking faithfully with you day by day. Thank you that you want joy in our lives. You want peace in our hearts. You want love in our communities. So we do pray, Lord, at this time that you would open your word to us. Give us ears to hear, minds to understand, and the will to respond to your call. Pray against anything that would distract us or take us away from what you're doing in this place. Give us that en- that uh, air of expectation. May your spirit move freely amongst us now to bring glory to the great name of the risen Jesus. Through his name we pray. Amen. Back in the uh, 1910s and 1920s, the name Charlie Chaplin was very highly regarded. Of course, often still mentioned even today. Great comedy actor. And in the days when all the movies were in black and white, and you didn't hear anything apart from perhaps the piano playing, there were specific challenges to the communication that took place uh, through that medium. And of course, Charlie Chaplin had a remarkable gift at that visual presentation with a special black bowler hat and these enormous black shoes and a special cane. Very powerful visual image and a very distinctive walk and a great sense of humour. In fact, so strong that image became, it actually gave rise to a number of local contests to be a Charlie Chaplin look-alike. In fact, across the country, there were Charlie Chaplin contests. Who could look like him? Who could walk like him? Well, Charlie Chaplin, not surprisingly, found out about these contests. I thought it might be quite fun to have a go himself. So they're holding a contest in San Francisco, and he duly registered and turned up and entered into the competition. He did not win. Again, this whole thing's contested. I'm pretty sure it did happen, but again, you can check these things out on Snopes and such like. But it seems it actually happened. He had a go for this contest, and he didn't win. In fact, he didn't even make the finals. I suspect he went home pretty disappointed. (laughs) He was much less like Charlie Chaplin than he'd thought. Apparently, he did actually offer coaching on getting the walk right. I don't know if anyone took him up on it. It's one of those moments when people didn't actually realise who this man was. However famous Charlie Chaplin was at that time, apparently they didn't recognise it was him. And they felt other people were more like him than he was. 
we human beings aren't quite as good at spotting these things as perhaps we sometimes like to think. But in this wonderful encounter we hear about today, in this face-to-face with Jesus, these two travellers who on that first Easter Sunday were on their way uh, from Jerusalem to Emmaus, about seven miles away, probably about a two-hour walk. On their journey, they actually encounter Jesus. And we discover they don't immediately realise who he is. Now maybe he's wearing a robe a little bit like this, and probably with a hood on it. Then maybe the hood kind of covered his face a bit. And maybe he was keeping his hands warm by keeping his hands inside the sleeves. We don't know how he did it, we're not told how, but we are told he hid himself from them. So they didn't realise immediately who it was. Because what we have in this passage I want to focus our attention on today is a wonderful experience of seeing Jesus reveal who he is to these particular disciples. There are two of them. One of them we know is named Cleopas, and the other one we don't know, his or her name. We just know they were heading out from Jerusalem, going to Emmaus on that first Easter day. One suggestion that makes sense to me is that maybe the other person with Cleopas might have been his wife, Mary. Who knows? But whatever it is, whoever they were, they were regular folk. They were not one of the 12, now 11 disciples. And yet Jesus came alongside them and brought them to put their faith in him. And that's why this seems such an important text to us. Important for us who already have our faith in Jesus, who already believe he actually rose from the dead on that third day, and that he's actually the Lord of heaven and earth, that everything was made through him and for him. We who believe that already, it's good for us to go back to some of these foundational texts and to be affirmed in that faith. It's true. That really is who he is. It's also a great text if you're here as an inquirer. Maybe you're a little bit in the situation that those two were on that first Easter Sunday. Cleopas, let's assume perhaps it's Mary. They're on their way home and they hear rumours that Jesus, that they knew had been crucified on the Friday, was now alive again. They've heard the rumours and they don't know what to make of it. So maybe you're in that situation. You've heard it told, Jesus is alive. That's an enormous claim. That a dead man rose three days later with a resurrection body that would never go sick, never grow old, and never die. It was the first of the new creation. It's an incredibly significant moment. Nothing like it has ever happened before or since. If it's true, everything is different. Our perspective on the world around us changes. We realise that we are in a crisis that will come to an end. Jesus will come back. He will bring justice and peace. And we who have faith in him will ourselves have a resurrection body like his. That's the claim. It's an enormous claim. Nothing is the same if that is true. We can be forgiven the things that stand between us and our God. We can live with a purpose in the present that goes beyond the accumulation of reputation and wealth and relationships that most of our compatriots are seeking for. And it means that there is a hope for an everlasting future beyond our wildest imaginings. There's a huge amount at stake as we think about these things. And so it's a wonderful thing that we have in our scripture text here. One of those incredibly significant moments when Jesus came alongside these people and told them, who he was. So I want us to really focus in on this text to have a chance to come to faith 
or to renew our faith in this Jesus just by seeing what was said and what was done on that great occasion in Luke chapter 24. So we've got the text here on page 6. Let me just read out the first few verses. As we see that Jesus came to them where they were. Now that same day, Easter Sunday, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came and walked along with them, but they were kept from recognizing him. What did he do? He asked them a question. What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. That's where the story begins. So Jesus asked them, what are they talking about? Now, of course, Jesus knows. That's one of the things that God delights to do, we see in Jesus. He asks us to articulate what we're thinking, or he asks us to articulate what we're doing. Not because he doesn't know, but because he wants that connection to be made. Tell me what's on your mind. And so what we find out is exactly what they were thinking. We get his delightful summary in the following verses. Jesus of Nazareth, yep, Jesus came from Nazareth, that's where he grew up, it's not where he was born, but that's where he grew up. He is a man recognised in word and deed as a prophet. That was widely regarded. A lot of people at that time, certainly before the crucifixion, but clearly here some of them even afterwards, he was a prophet. A man who had great power in his words and in his deeds. He spoke for God and he acted as God. Now there are great figures in the Old Testament who had that kind of power and authority. Just to take two of them, Elijah and Elisha. Astonishing things happened through their ministries. People were healed, raised from the dead. Miracles occurred through these people. They demonstrated the Spirit of God was upon them in a special way. They'd been called by God to speak his word and to do his works. So when they saw Jesus doing his amazing teachings with great authority and performing his remarkable miracles, they began to say, another prophet has come. And there'd been a gap of 400 years since the last prophet, other than John the Baptist himself. It's another remarkable moment. Just to take one example. One day Jesus was going through a town called Nain and he came across a widow whose only son had died. And so he comes up to the procession, the funeral procession, he touches the bier, the coffin, the bearer stood still, and Jesus said, young man, I say to you, arise. Jesus is talking to a dead man, telling him to get up. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave, them, gave him to his mother. Fear seized them all, and they glorified God, saying... A great prophet has arisen among us. And it happened so many other times. That's just one example. When people heard Jesus speak with authority, talking to a dead man and telling him to get up, and seeing that he did, and realizing he had the power to do these things. So this word had gone out. A lot of people had seen him, heard him, talking and acting, and the word had gone out. He's a prophet. But also they go on to explain that he had been crucified. And of course, a death had often been the painful end for so many of God's prophets. But they said, we'd hoped he might be the redeemer. Now, redeemer is a word we don't use a whole lot these days. 
But a redeemer or a ransomer was someone who would pay to set someone else free. So for instance, if you've been in a battle somewhere and some of your soldiers had been taken prisoner by the other side, you had to pay to get them back. You would pay a ransom for your prisoners of war if you wanted them back. And of course, the more valuable the prisoner, the more you had to pay. You may have come across the phrase, the king's ransom. If you wanted the king back, you had to pay a lot for him. That would, of course, have saved the Americans a lot of money. You wouldn't have paid for him. But British people think kings might be a good thing. So they have to pay a large amount to get their king back. But it's a ransom. Again, you're paying to set free these prisoners. Or you could be a, ran- a ransomer or a redeemer for someone who is in debtor's jail. They got into a debt they couldn't pay. They were now in prison for it. Obviously not able to earn anything there. But you could get the debtor out of jail by paying their debt for them. Again, you're the redeemer, you're the ransomer. And the hope had grown up around Jesus that here's someone who wasn't just a prophet, wonderful as that would be, but someone who'd actually come to set people free. Free from captivity. Maybe captivity to the Roman authorities. But maybe even more than that, so many Old Testament prophecies showed some new king, greater than King David, who would usher in a new era, a new kingdom, even greater than the glory days of King David and King Solomon. So this redeemer would come to set people free and to put them into a new place with God and with each other. But he'd been crucified. So they're trying to wrestle with this. What does it mean? He can't redeem us if he's dead. But then the word goes out, he's risen from the dead. It's so incredibly significant. It's never happened before. It's never happened again that someone's come back from the dead never to die again. The widow of Nain's son had to die twice. Jesus never died again and he never shall. He's risen in the power of an endless life. That is why it is so significant. He rose from the dead. It affirms what he claimed about himself. It gives him the power to do what he needs to do to sort the world out and to restore the universe to its glory for which it was made. So incredibly significant. But Jesus starts his conversation by just asking them, well, what are you talking about? He finds out where they're at, and he starts from there. What is great news for us if we're still trying to work out about this Jesus, to know that he meets us where we are. We haven't got to get somewhere else. We haven't got to answer all the questions. We haven't got to get our lives all sorted out. He meets us where we are. He makes himself known. He transforms our lives. That's why this is good news and not bad news. But not only that, we see that he goes on to explain more about who he is. He starts off from where they are, and he takes them to faith in himself. When I was at college, I got to know someone who's become a very good friend to me ever since. And it's amazing to me how God touched this man's life and every member of his family, and brought each one of them to know Jesus as Lord and Saviour over about 20, 25 years. He met them where they were, and he brought them to himself. The story begins with his younger sister. I don't know how it happened, but she came to put her faith in Jesus. I guess in her mid-teens. My friend became a Christian when he was having a gap year at Harwell Nuclear Research Institute, just outside of Oxford. He was coming up to study physics along with me. and So he was fascinated in these things. At Harwell, he met a whole bunch of serious Christian people who helped him to see the truth of the Christian faith. They had massive debates 
one of which was about the nature of consciousness, which I still don't understand what the debate was all about. There were things he was able to do and learn through churches in Oxford. But all these different things helped my friend to put his faith in Jesus. So then he arrives at college and we uh, continue the story. We're praying for his family. Next thing that happens, he's got a sister, a year or two older than him, same university, different college. She hears that her younger brother and younger sister have both come to put their faith in Jesus. And she begins to think a bit. Then she begins to look around amongst her friends and she noticed the people she most admired were Christians. And so she came to put her faith in Jesus. The next part of the story sounds back to front. This is just how it happened. Their mother noticed that two of her daughters and her son had come to this lively personal faith in Jesus. So she invited them to a Billy Graham crusade in the 1980s. Now, of course, the children should have invited her, but that's just how it turned out. She invited them. And she went up at the rally, gave us life to, Christian, to, to Jesus Christ, and has followed him ever since. Well, at this point, the father of the family is becoming uncomfortable. He was a very dignified man, had happily taken his family to church for many years, but hadn't really wanted them to get more involved. And he was distressed. His wife and three of his four children had now come through to this serious commitment to Jesus Christ as Lord and Saviour. He wasn't happy about that. But he had to admit that every change he saw in his wife and children was a change for the better. So he had a plan. He was the head teacher of a school, kind of middle school age, I suspect. And it was a school in a tough area of town. And he had a thought. It would be very good for the children at my school to find out about this Jesus. So he started bringing in preachers to preach evangelistic sermons at his school. He had the authority to do it. And through that ministry, some of the children in the school got converted and their lives were turned about. Some of the issues of the behaviour were changed, praise God. He was very happy about that. He wasn't quite so happy about the fact his deputy head teacher became a Christian too. You almost feel sorry for him. Most of the family now very serious about the faith. His own colleagues. We almost feel sorry for him, but not quite. And again, within a few months, he came himself to kneel before the Lord Jesus Christ and admit he was his Lord and Saviour. And follows him to this very day. There's one other daughter, you know. It took her another 20 years before she came to faith. And for her, it was through a serious illness that she had to battle. But you can see how Jesus met every one of these people where they were. Whether it was at a nuclear research institution, whether through their friends at college, through their children, through the family, through Christian evangelists, through illness, Jesus met them where they were. And that is such a beautiful part of what Jesus does. He comes alongside us where we are and he helps us to see who he is who he is. Such a beautiful thing. So again, if you're an inquirer into the faith, I want to encourage you to be in those places where you can find those people who can help you come to faith. A place like this, where there are witnesses to the resurrected Jesus all around you. But also you might want to consider the Pittsburgh experiment. An experiment started right down here at Calvary Church in Pittsburgh, through Samuel Shoemaker. 
And he said to a group of his business guys who were at the church then but were wondering if they might just as well be playing golf on a Sunday morning. So he said to them, here's the challenge for you. I want you to take the thing that concerns you most and ask the resurrected Jesus to help you with that thing. And I want you to say that prayer every day for 30 days. And if you think anything happens, let's all gather up in 30 days to talk about it. And they all came. Jesus would meet these people where they were. So maybe for you, if you're still an inquirer, think what is the thing that is keeping you awake at night? Maybe it's something to do with your work. Maybe a relationship. Maybe a financial issue or something to do with your health or the health of a loved one. Whatever it is, take that thing to Jesus. Day by day, over a 30-day period, and just see what he will do. And then come to talk to the pastors here about what you discover. Jesus delights to meet us where we are. But we notice that Jesus doesn't stop there. The next thing we see is he takes them into the scriptures. So I'm going to go on to verse 25. And Jesus said to these disciples, How foolish you are, how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. He wanted and expected them to understand what was going on. So he explained it. Did not the Christ, the anointed one, the great king, the great son, the greater son of David, did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. This must have been quite a Bible study. He's going through the whole Old Testament, from Genesis right the way through to Malachi, explaining it's all about him. He is the word of God made flesh. He is the one through whom and for whom all things were made. And you can see that text after text throughout the whole of the Old Testament is pointing to Jesus. We get a similar Bible study later on in the same book of Luke, the same chapter, when Jesus is speaking with the other, the 11 apostles, other disciples. Again and again, he wants us to get into the scriptures. Jesus delights to make himself known through the word of God. Those prophecies that point forward to him, and now we've got the New Testament too, gospels that speak about him, and then those epistles that speak about the life of the church and how we can live with Jesus today. I was reminded of a book I remember reading when I was uh, back at seminary myself. I remember being very struck by this book in many ways, Stories of Faith by John Finney. And it was talking about people who had come to put their faith in Jesus as adults. And it speaks a little bit about how that happened. And one particular chap was called Steve. He had no religion, he said. He never went to church, never went to Sunday school. He never prayed. He had no sense of guilt. And he didn't think much about God. He'd never been inside a church. He had never read the Bible. Described his frame of mind as happy. So he is the archetypal happy pagan. We're going to find more and more of these folks. Learn to be happy even without Jesus. Well, we've got good news for them. There's a whole bunch more happiness out there. He watched Christian television programs and films. He had Christian friends. He said, I work with them. This lady was talking about God with me all the time. Notice the witness of that friend. But the other thing was, he was just as he started work, he left school at 16, started as a farm worker. At this time, he was invited to a Christian group where they were studying the Bible. He said, I was having a Bible study 
I like what I heard, and I was saved that night. Through studying the Bible. The Bible has a way of simply coming alive. God himself speaks to us through this book. What a beautiful thing. So again, if you are seeking, trying to work out if it's true about Jesus risen from the dead, you want to be studying the Bible. If you haven't got a Bible yet, get yourself a Bible. Read through maybe Luke's Gospel. And get yourself a part of anyone else studying the Bible. Be with those who are used to studying the Bible, who've learnt to study the Bible. They can help you get into the Scriptures for yourself. But again, also those of us who already know the Lord, who are seeking to walk with the risen Lord, keep yourself in the Scriptures. There's so many ways in which the Word of God comes alive as we read it on our own or in groups, as well as when we hear it together here in church. It enriches our faith. It helps us to cast a big vision and not to simply get caught up with our everyday concerns. But more than that, Jesus then goes on to go into their home. The evening is, getting, is coming on, and these disciples, Cleopas and perhaps his wife, invite him into their home. Stay with us, they say. It's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. And then verse 30, when Jesus was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks broke it and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem where they found the eleven and those with them assembled. It's true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. The two of them told what had happened on the way. And how Jesus was recognised by them when he broke the bread. So in that culture, hospitality was such a high priority. Even though they didn't know who this man was, they invited him into their home. But the striking thing is, Jesus breaks the bread. Well, that's the role of the host. Why wasn't Cleopas breaking the bread? He's invited him to the dinner. But Jesus takes the bread and breaks it. He is the Lord of heaven and earth. He can take over our home... That's only going to be for the better. He can take over our communities and our world. It's going to be so much better when he does. But perhaps, you see, if he was wearing a robe like this, as he broke the bread, maybe they saw the hands. They saw the damage of the nails in his hands or his wrists. Maybe that's what opened their eyes, but something happened. It's Jesus. Maybe the light of the candle caught the face of Jesus. They thought, guess who it is? It's Jesus. Somewhere or that, we're not told how. They said, it's Jesus. He was made known in the breaking of the bread. Now, Cleopas and his wife, they had not been there when Jesus had his last supper. So it's not really a reminder of that, because they weren't there. But there's something about his breaking of the bread that time and again, Jesus uses to remind us about himself, the body broken for us on the cross so that we can be forgiven and restored into relationship with God and put back on track with him. And they were so excited, they felt, didn't their hearts burn within them as they heard the word of God? See, maybe even now, or maybe as you hear the word read or preached, you feel something going on inside you. That's the spirit of God at work. Helping us to see these things are true, opening our eyes, opening our ears to the reality that Jesus is alive. But also, you notice, we're then invited to the table. 
whether it be the breaking of bread and the pouring out of the wine. Yes, it's a reminder again that Jesus died for us. His body was broken, his blood was poured out so we can be forgiven and restored into our relationship with our Father in heaven. So our lives can be lived for him and with him. We're back on track. We're getting ready for the glorious future that lies ahead and living now in the light of what is to come. So he speaks to us through his word and he ministers to us through his sacraments. The water of baptism. He speaks of cleansing and renewal. That's the first step. As we hear this perhaps for the first time, the call is to recognize he, Jesus, is the Lord. We can trust him with our lives. We can receive the forgiveness that he's won for us. We can have the spirit that he has secured for us so that our lives can be made new and set off on this new track with him in the fellowship of the church. We hear the word. We come to repent, to be baptized. And then we come time and again to the table to receive the bread and the wine to remind us of what he has done in the breaking of his body and the pouring out of his blood. He has secured our salvation. He is our redeemer. The one who's paid the price to set us free from sin and death and the devil. He's paid the price. He has set us free. Hallelujah. That's the reality of what he has done. And as he speaks his word to us, and as he calls us to his table, he wants us to have faith that this is true. That our lives can be set on that right path with him so that we can have peace with God. We can have a purpose in our present and a joy in our lives and a hope for the future. That's what he wants for us. And Jesus is here even now through his Holy Spirit. So this can be true for us. Or this can be renewed in us if we know it already. That's what's going on. Jesus is the Lord. He is risen from the dead and he is Lord. And he is here in our midst to help us come to faith or to renew our faith in him so that we can go out like those first disciples did and spread the good news. He's alive. He's alive. And everything is now going to be new. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much for this great example of how you came face to face with these two travellers on their road to Emmaus. We thank you for the way you've met so many of us in our journeys already. We give you thanks for that. Thank you for every example of those meetings with you. And we pray that you continue to meet with us day by day, week by week, year by year. Help us remember fondly these moments. But we pray especially for anyone here who's not had one of those moments and may even today be saying, well, why not today? Maybe you feel kind of a burning in your heart. The Spirit of God is speaking to you, saying, it's you, it's for you. Well, you've got to do what those first disciples did, Cleopas and uh, the other who was with him. Invite him into your home. So Lord, as we gather here, we just pray that you would continue this work in our hearts and uh, make this a reality for us. Come into our hearts and into our homes. I'm going to say a prayer now for anyone who wants to make that commitment for the very first time or to renew a, a commitment from years gone by. As you hear this word again, you know the Spirit of God is calling you. Jesus is in your midst. I just want to say a prayer you can just echo back in the silence of your own hearts. Lord Jesus Christ, Thank you that you are risen from the dead. Thank you that you love to bring people to faith in you. Thank you that you died, that we might be forgiven and set free to serve you. Cleanse us from our sin. Put your Holy Spirit within us today. Come into our hearts. 
come into our homes, come into our neighbourhoods, communities and nations. And bless us as we come to your table, we pray, all for the glory of your holy name. Amen.